This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show. The award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. The Norris Group proudly presents our 15th annual award-winning event, I Survived Real Estate. Industry experts join Bruce Norris to discuss evolving industry trends, real estate bubbles, inflation, and opportunities emerging for real estate professionals. All proceeds from the event benefit Make-A-Wish and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. See isurvivedrealestate.com for event details, information on all our generous sponsors, and to connect with our speakers. We want to thank our Platinum Partners. San Diego Creative Investors Association, U Direct IRA Services, White Feather Investments, The Collective Genius, MVT Productions, and Realty 411. Do you, can uh, any of you or all of you, do you see the, a chance that we could be at the same median price? Not that we went straight across, but uh, 10 years from now. I personally think that right now, and I think there's two scenarios that are widely different, but I think within 10 years, I think it's likely we'll see rates in the ones and 40-year terms. Ones and 40-year terms. Okay, well, that's controversial. How do we get there? Because yeah. it's the only thing that we, it's the only playbook we have. Now, we can't do it if inflation's still high, right? right? So that's a problem, but it's the only playbook we have that when the economy stumbles, it hasn't stumbled yet, despite whatever talking points you hear, when it stumbles, right, we're going to cut rates and we're going to provide stimulus to the market. It's the only playbook we have. It's the only thing we do. We do it over and over and over again. It's a crisis economy, you know, now. And so the only, the big mistake we're doing, right, is that when things start to get better, we need to put some more ammo back in the in the gun, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of cutting taxes in 2016, we need to raise taxes, right? We needed to start raising rates a long time ago and the rest, and we wouldn't have gotten to this euphoric position, right? Uh, fiscal policy, by the way, um, is a lot better in my mind than raising rates. So what if to slow down the economy, you know, we had a government that worked well together and we started raising taxes. Now, I know that's a, a bad thing, but let me ask you right now, would you rather have higher taxes helping slow the economy and take the steam out or 7% you know, mortgage rates? Like which is gonna do more damage and pull things around and mess with markets more? Um, I think it's rates, but we don't have the political will to have good conversations like that. What we do have is any time a crisis comes, we throw everything in the book at it. And we got pretty lucky the last few times, right? We ended up with reflation where we brought things kind of back into a good place, right? And we recovered a little faster. Um, and we did better, you know, we did better with that with the pandemic. This last time though, we did too much, right? And you do too much and you go from reflation, which brings you back to where you're supposed to go, to inflation. And, you know, but that's, it's hard to get these things right. You know, we're not very good about handing out stimulus and doing these things. So we just went too far this time. But it's not just us, right? In inflation, if you look at the G20, we're about half 
Right. You know? So half of the G20 has higher inflation than we have. Our rates are at the low end of the G20. I think there's only three, three countries in the G20 that have lower rates than we have. So, like, we're not actually doing very bad. What, what happened in the UK with the bond market? I'm just curious, and does that have a, a chance to tip over and get into some contagion of other? So, so um, one of the things that happens is when uh, central banks start to tighten, and you have an aggressive increase in interest rates, and we've had that around the world, um, it tends to expose places where people have got leverage, whether it's real leverage through debt or synthetic leverage through other contracts. Um, and that's what happened in the UK, right? They, they, uh, they had a little bit of a, a miscall on what the policy response should be for the new conservative government a couple of weeks ago. They spooked the bond market. Bond rates jumped. And then all of a sudden, um, pension funds that had been using, um, and we call them exotic tools, but had basically been using leverage, were caught flat-footed. Um, and it was interesting, there was one quote of a trader who said, we're going to have to close out all these trades for uh, pension plans uh, that day because they couldn't meet their margins. So at 11 o'clock, we called the Bank of England and said, by the way, by the end of the day, we're going to be forced selling way more bonds uh, because of a margin call. So that's why the Bank of England jumped in. Um, We've uh, that, that's an interesting, you know, the contagion kind of thing is is uh, scary right now, right? Because yeah. to have that and our only thing that we do is to provide stimulus, if we have some sort of contagion problem come in and then we have to provide stimulus when we already have high inflation. So um, that that's bad. Well, that's, that's We don't need right now would be a bad time to have any kind of financial crisis or any kind of new... Um, you know, black swan. We need, need inflation to come back down. If inflation comes back down first and then we have a black swan, then we get rates in the ones. Okay. Yeah. That's why I said there's two kind of scary possibilities right now, or two different possibilities. Yeah, I think the, the real difficulty of this current situation is that when you start tightening interest rates the way it's happening now, you can see how much money supply has dropped. You can see how much Fed funds has gone up you don't know what's going to break where and when. That's just the nature of a tightening part of the cycle. Um, the Fed or other policymakers don't know because leverage is hidden during a boom, right? And people taking risks is hidden during a boom because the rising asset prices kind of make everyone look good. So um, it, it goes to this question of is the Fed going to have to keep raising or at some point is there some global financial crisis that comes back into the U.S. or some part of the U.S. system that has stresses and strains that policymakers can't accept, and the Fed has to stop tightening, right? And, and, and recall that the official mandate of the Fed is, is full employment and, um, you know, price stability. The, the very first mandate before that is financial stability, right? They, they will step in and change their policy if they think there's a danger of some meltdown in a key part of the financial system. You know, I don't pay attention to currencies all that much, but I have noticed that the dollar and against the euro is swapped places and gotten pretty close to the pound. The pound. Right. So what ramifications does that have so, for those people? 
So um, that has a real ramification, particularly in, um, you know, in the developing world, um, or emerging market, I guess we call it now. But where a lot of uh, countries have to borrow in dollars, right? They can't borrow in their own currency. So you saw Sri Lanka had a crisis and a change of government. There were also other issues there around um, quality of governance and um, that contributed to that. But you know, you see high food prices because of the war in Ukraine, um, higher oil prices. Oil's back down to the mid 80s, but it could spike again. So there are a number of places where a strong dollar, a strong dollar in your local currency makes oil more expensive, even if we don't think it is, right? So there's a number of places where it feeds back uh, into other countries. And, and it adds to the, the potential for financial fragility, but it also just slows down the overall global economy. What about the apartment sector? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, my, my thought a long time ago was that boomed because you had all the foreclosures and you couldn't get to qualify for a, for a home loan, and so everybody moved to an apartment. And I remember speaking in front of a pretty good-sized audience of the Apartment Owner Association, and one of the, it was like packed. It was 400 plus people and they were lying on the walls, and I thought, I said, well, you guys are either really excited or really scared, and uh, laughed. And one guy said, we just want to know if apartments are in bubble territory. And I said, I'm not an apartment guy, but I, I, I can ask one question and you'll tell me how many of you would buy your apartment at today's valuation. And there was like rolling laughter, you know? <laughs> and so I guess, I guess my question is, is that because of interest rate hikes, does that cap rate that they are accustomed to, does that now make that not sensible? So I, I'm so glad you brought up apartments because in your earlier question about um, what chart kind of has, has one worried? For the chart that or change that has bothered me the most the last month is that um, multifamily apartment rents are not going up anymore. Right. And the vacancy rates are starting to go up. That shouldn't be the case right now because the uh, own versus rent it's because of the rise in interest rates, buying a home has become a lot more expensive, right? As Bruce was walking through the examples. So you should have more households staying in their rental and, and more new households forming, renting instead of owning. But you're not. You're seeing vacancies go up a little bit and rents are no longer rising. Some data from some vendors suggests they're going down. So that tells me that the household sector is either becoming more cautious and or it's under higher financial stress from the inflation uh, than, than people might realize. Or, or we're actually having negative household formation for the first time in my career, which is actually what the data is showing. Okay. Um, and some of the apartment REITs, the, again, public data, stunning achievement during COVID. So. Um, Avalon Bay went from 1.8, 50,000 apartments, went from 1.8 people per apartment to 1.6 in a one-year period. Huge household formation with people decoupling. UDR went from 2.1 to 1.8. I mean, all the one bedrooms, everybody's moving. Um, real page data in institutional grade apartments, 300,000 more occupied apartments every single year from like 2014 through 2020. 
700,000 more occupied apartments in 2021. So there was a huge household formation surge last year. That everybody was saying, yeah, we're pulling forward demand. Well, guess what? We pulled it forward from this year. <laughs> so so I, I actually think the number of households that are forming right now is actually, they're in decline with a 40-year high of apartments under construction mm. ready to get finished that now need to get leased up. Now, now that we are going to have one positive on this panel. If rates, if rents are flat or falling, rents are 30% of CPI, which means inflation's going to come down. Now, I, I'm actually going to plug, do one plug for the Fed here. The, the rent data has a six-month lag in it, so it will not show up in the CPI for six months, and the Wall Street Journal and everybody else will say they're idiots and behind the curve, they don't know what's going on. The Fed is not that stupid. The Fed knows what he knows and what I know and what everybody else knows because we talk to them. And in fact, I'll do a plug for a book. If you want to know what's going on with the Fed, and Warren Buffett plugged this book too, read Trillion Dollar Triage by Nick Tim Rose. It actually, believe it or not, even for non-geeks like me and Bruce, it's a page turner on the Fed. It's really well written. Um, of what the insight Jay Powell and Steve Mnuchin had to pull off what they pulled off two years ago. It was just amazing. It'll give you a lot of, gave me a lot of confidence that these guys are not a bunch of dummies. Um, I will say though, that I think they're, they're in the, maybe different than the Volcker area, era, is they are part of the politics now. And the reason in my view, Jay Powell did not raise rates um, was because he was hoping to get reappointed in February and then they dragged that out to May. And so he really didn't start saying the word pain and housing reset, which he now says all the time, until after he got reappointed because there's no way he was gonna get reappointed when he said that before. But now he's been reappointed for his term and I think he wants to be the Paul Volcker that kills this thing and that's, that's where he's headed. So um, I mean, if you want some insight, it's, it's a really, it is a very well-written book. <laughs> on this topic. Trillion Dollar Triage by, Nick, Nick, by Tim Nick Tim Rose, the guy who covers the Fed for the Wall Street Journal. And I actually, and actually Goldman Sachs gave him a nasty nickname called Nicky Leaks. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think Jay Powell actually is using Nick to communicate to the market. I mean, that's how tied in this all is going, Nick, so. Nick was one of my favorites during the foreclosure crisis too. He's been around a while, he's, he's really good. He's a wonderful person. You know, on the, the housing uh, side, like I think one thing that people didn't take into account in this boom in housing was the um, kind of household formation that COVID forced, right? So you had families living together, you know, but if you've got a daughter who's a nurse living with their parents, she can't come home. So that family had to split. And I think we had a lot of housing formation and we had uh, high divorce rates and other things through COVID, right? And suddenly you gotta be home together every day. Maybe that's not so good, right? <laughs> and so, so we had a Sorry lot. to hear that, Sean. <laughs> uh, so we had a lot. I went to the office every day. <laughs> but um, so in any case, you know, I think we're seeing the reverse of that now 
right? Where, okay, now, like, hey, the economy's maybe slowing down a little bit, things are whatever, we're going back to nesting, and, we're and done it, with that kind of period yeah, We've of done time. a ton of research on this. It's also related with people calling people back to the office. So part of that move was, I'm gonna go somewhere that's more affordable or go back home. Now I gotta go back to New York or back to wherever I'm getting forced to come back to work, so. Yeah, so I think that's, that's definitely a big, uh, one big factor over the next a little bit of time anyways. What, so I'm just curious, perspective. one last question uh, until the last one. Land prices, what's going on with that? Uh, we just finished our land survey. They're, they're down 7% nationally. 5% in A locations and 9% in the, in the C and D locations. According to 75 land brokers, there's not really good data. We had to do a survey on that, which is hardly a correction at all. No, not yeah. at all. There's a really interesting chart when maybe well, in Florida, there's an area where Florida's land can go up by a multiple of 20 times. So a building lot that's five can turn into 20. And I was speaking at an, at an uh, not an apartment, but it was in, like an industrial. It was a combination of speakers that were there, and there was an industrial guy. And he's talking about land prices. And so I raised my hand, and I said, I'm just curious. What was that land? So he said it was worth 140 bucks a foot, and it was in Barstow or something. And uh, I said, what was that worth 10 years ago? He said, well, three years ago, it was worth 70. Now, take me back 10. There was a pause. He said, seven. It had gone up 20 times. So does land, does land revert more easily than any other inventory as far as to another price? More significantly, but not more easily. Usually land prices are very sticky on the way down because there's not a lot of urgency by the land seller to sell. Usually. I mean, there's not a lot of debt on land, usually. There's not a lot, it's not, you know, a lot of times it's not a private equity guy who needs to finish out his funds and all that. It's somebody with very patient capital. Okay. They also may not want to hear, we did a mailer one time, and then I'll oh, this one, this one story. The guy called up and he bragged on his piece of land for a while, and this was 2000 and let's say nine. And there was a pause, and I said, you know, I can't place any value on your lot. There was a pause. He said, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a funny story related to that that a appraiser friend of mine said that apparently is true, but he got a pay, a pay, a hired to do a huge parcel of land in Texas. And he came back and said, the highest and best use of this land is to hold the earth together. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've owned five of those lots in the Quail Valley that's doing just that. <laughs> All right. We're, we're about out of time. I usually end with, I think, this question. The one thing you'd like to see happen for either our country, let's say, or for our industry. I'll, Mark, do you want to go? So I, I guess for this group, what I would love to see is um, that uh, policymakers no longer view multifamily landlords as good, providing uh, a home for people who need it, and single-family landlords somehow bad because they're keeping a home out of the hands of a first-time home buyer, when in fact, as you guys know from your customers, um, you're providing a home to a family who, who wants that, who, who wants the yard, who wants a certain school district, other amenities. So I don't know how to change that mindset, but I think that's the challenge for this industry after we get past the next recession.
how about the world all become a little bit more like Aaron Norris? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's impossible to uh, follow. <laughs> um, I would love to see us collectively as a society have more real conversations about things that are more important. I want to thank you guys for helping me get through a pretty tough night with a smile on my face. Yeah. Very cool. I think we've had this event for almost 15 years, and I think I've said the same thing for 15 years, and it's still at the top of my list. I wished every elected official would stop acting like a Republican or a Democrat and act like an American. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for coming out. And uh, we had a ball tonight. Joey, thanks so much for your hard work. Holy cow. <laughs> I, I, I know where Joey's heart was, and Joey, Joey's thinking, when Aaron looks down, I want him to be proud of tonight. <laughs> All right, thank you. We'd also like to thank our gold sponsors, Chase Leland Photography, Inland Valley Association of Realtors, Keystone CPA Inc., LA South RIA, Lavis Tax Wealth Management, NorCal RIA, NSDREI, Pasadena Phoebe, Tony Alvarez, White House Catering, Wilson Investments, Windermere Tower Realty. See iSurvivedRealEstate.com for event details, information on all our generous supporters, and to connect with our speakers. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.